Hello, everyone, and welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Every year on December 5th at 1 p.m., 1300 hours, rain or shine, a memorial ceremony takes place at the Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale Museum Building in Florida. The solemn occasion commemorates the loss of 27 airmen, 14 of them from five Grumman Avenger airplanes that vanished first, and another 13 men from one of the two Mariner seaplanes that were sent to find the missing Avengers. All of this occurred in what has come to be called the Bermuda Triangle. The triangle being a rough outline over the Atlantic Ocean, which connects Miami, Bermuda, and Puerto Rico. All six planes and 27 airmen vanished without a trace on the afternoon of December 5, 1945. Despite a massive search, nothing was ever found. No oil slicks, no wreckage, nothing. We are only left with confusing radio transmissions and radar contact from the air bases and ships off the Florida coast at that time. This tragic day of human losses marked the beginning of the modern-day revival of the stories covering the Bermuda Triangle. Although the Bermuda Triangle wasn't named as such until author Vincent Gaddis coined the term in a 1964 magazine article, the area of the Bermuda Triangle has drawn attention from mariners for centuries and accounted for a large share of strange occurrences. Aside from the fact that the area is known for its preponderance of reefs, storms, and cross currents, it has drawn attention in a number of different ways. When Christopher Columbus ventured through the Triangle on his first trip to the New World, he recorded a great flame of fire crashing into the sea one night followed by a strange light appearing in the distance a few weeks later. He also wrote about erratic compass readings and the rare lining up of magnetic north and true north in that area. Shipwrecks and reefs in that area have claimed hundreds of lives. Shakespeare's play, The Tempest, supposedly is a story of an English shipwreck on Bermuda. Very likely, the ship carrying Captain Newport and much-needed supplies to a beleaguered Jamestown settlement. There have been dozens of ships lost in the Bermuda Triangle in storms and gales. According to Coast Guard reports, there have been no losses at sea that could be attributed to anything other than explainable causes. One of the more notable incidents at sea that still raises questions, however, in March of 1918, the USS Cyclops, a 542-foot-long Navy cargo ship, carrying 300 men and 10,000 tons of manganese ore, sank somewhere between the Barbados and the Chesapeake Bay. The ship never sent out an SOS, despite its capability to do so, and an extensive search found no wreckage. Overall, as you look into the story of every sunken, lost, or abandoned ship in the Bermuda Triangle area, I believe that you will come to the conclusion that these ships were victims of gales and storms. 
you will notice soon upon your research that many wrecks and ghost ships found outside the parameters of the Bermuda Triangle wind up in the lists and stories anyway in places like North Carolina's Cape Hatteras and other areas of the North Atlantic. Not fair game when discussing the Bermuda Triangle. But planes are another story. Between the loss of Flight 19 in 1945 and today, over 130 planes have been lost in the Bermuda Triangle. Many more have been affected in some way by magnetic anomalies or freak storms. If you read enough first-hand accounts and results from investigations, you will come to believe that the Triangle does have its own strange atmospheric patterns which can upset compasses, envelop aircraft with unusual fog at high altitudes, and interfere with guidance systems and radio transmissions. These have definitely had an effect on aircraft, as the accounts of dozens of pilots who have witnessed it read. Pilots like Kerry Gordon Trantum, whose story written in the third person is available at her website, BermudaTriangleSurvivor.com. And we'll paraphrase that story for you here. 1995, Kerry Gordon Trantum had a close call as a pilot of a small private Piper Warrior when she was returning home after spending time with her daughter in the Florida Keys. While flying over the open water at night, she suddenly felt as if a dark blanket of fog had been thrown over her plane. The horizon disappeared and she couldn't see lights of any kind, just total blackness. At this point, a pilot can only rely on the plane's instruments to keep it level and at a safe altitude. Unfortunately, the compass had gone erratic. The panel lights were fluctuating from dim to bright. The altitude indicator began to roll and there was a buzzing sound in her headset. Her story has been featured on the Discovery Channel, the Learning Channel, Sci-Fi Network, and National Geographic. And it's a strong testimony to the strange happenings in the Bermuda Triangle. Other planes have disappeared without a trace in the Triangle within the past 10 years. Among them, on June 20, 2005, a Piper PA-23 vanished between Treasure Cay, Bahamas, and Fort Pierce, Florida, with three people aboard. On April 10, 2007, a Piper PA-46-310P disappeared near Barry Islands with only the pilot on board. On December 15, 2008, a Briton Norman Islander vanished near the Windward Islands with 11 passengers aboard. Only two years after the tragic disappearance of Flight 19 in 1945, a C-54 Skymaster the military version of a DC-4, took off from Bermuda, lost all its navigational abilities, and flew opposite its planned course and right into the teeth of a terrific storm, making no effort to avoid the storm. Wreckage found indicated that it had broken up in midair. Less than one year later, a Tudor Star Tiger on its way to Bermuda was lost at sea in perfectly calm weather. An 11-day investigation by the British Air Ministry admitted that, quote, no more baffling problem has ever been presented for investigation. The fate of the Star Tiger must remain an unsolved mystery, end quote. This happened in January of 1948. Eleven months after that, on December 28, 1948, a DC-3 with 28 passengers and three crew members disappeared without a trace in the Triangle on its way from Puerto Rico to Miami. 
The DC-3 was an extremely reliable aircraft built by Douglas, prop-driven, and still in use today as an island hopper. The flight left San Juan at 10.03 p.m. in good weather, headed for Miami. The captain called in his position at 11.23 p.m., but strangely, it was received 700 miles away at Miami, but not at San Juan, which was much closer. Later, close to Miami, the pilot radioed in again to report his position, but it was not received at Miami or San Juan. This time it was received 600 miles away in New Orleans, and that was the last time any message was heard from the DC-3. Whatever happened to that plane had to have happened very quickly, and there was never a trace of wreckage found. According to BermudaTriangle.org, around 129 planes have disappeared over the waters in the Bermuda Triangle between 1945 and 2008. Something is definitely going on in that area. It began as nothing more than a routine training flight. At 2 p.m. on December 5, 1945, five TBM Avenger torpedo bombers took off from a naval air station in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The planes, collectively known as Flight 19, were scheduled to tackle a three-hour exercise known as Navigation Problem Number 1, a combination of bombing and navigation, which other flights had completed or were scheduled to complete later that day. Their triangular flight plan called for them to head east from the Florida coast and conduct bombing runs at a place called Hens and Chicken Shoals. They would then turn north and proceed over Grand Bahama Island before changing course a third time and flying southwest back to base. Save for one plane that only carried two men, each of the Avengers was crewed by three Navy men or Marines, most of whom had logged around 300 hours in the air. The flight's leader was Lieutenant Charles C. Taylor, an experienced pilot and veteran of several combat missions in World War II's Pacific Theater while serving as a torpedo bomber pilot on the U.S. aircraft carrier Hancock before becoming an instructor. He had about 2,500 flying hours, 60 of them in the Avengers. Takeoff was scheduled for 13.45 or 1.45 p.m. local time, but Lieutenant Taylor was late, delaying the actual departure until 14.10 or 2.10 p.m. And for those of you unfamiliar with military time, which was first adopted by the Navy in 1920, every new day begins at midnight, 0 hundred hours, also called 2400 hours, and proceeds from one minute after midnight, which would be 0, 0, 0, 0001 hours, to 1 a.m., which is 0, 0100 hours, then 2 a.m., 0, 0200 hours, 0, 0300, and so forth, up to noon. 1200 hours, then 1 p.m., which is 1300 hours, through 6 p.m., which is 1800 hours, to midnight, called either 2400 hours or 0 hundred hours. It's easy once you get used to it. I have always remembered 1 o'clock p.m. as 1300, and everything else falls into place easily from there. At first, Flight 19's hop proceeded just as smoothly as the previous 18 that day. Taylor and his pilots flew east to Hens and Chicken Shoals around 1430 hours and dropped their practice bombs without incident. 
But shortly after the patrol turned north for the second leg of its journey, something very strange happened. For reasons that are still unclear, Taylor became convinced that his Avengers compass was malfunctioning and that his planes had been flying in the wrong direction. The troubles only mounted after a front blew in and brought rain, gusting winds, and heavy cloud cover. Flight 19 became hopelessly disoriented. The practice bombing operation mission had been completed because we know that at 1500, there was a request from one of the pilots to drop his last bomb, which was granted. Conversations between pilots, the base, and other aircraft in the area were overheard, and all who were involved later submitted the radio conversations to investigators by memory. At 1,540 hours, an unidentified transmission was received by the following flight instructor, Lieutenant Robert F. Cox, who was at that time forming up with his group of students for the next mission. The unidentified voice was asking Captain E.J. Powers, one of Taylor's students, for his compass reading, and Powers replied, I don't know where we are. We must have got lost after that last turn. Cox then transmitted, this is FT-74, plane or boat, calling Powers. Please identify yourself so someone can help you. The response after a few moments was a request to the others in the flight for suggestions. FT-74, try it again, asking what the trouble was. And the man identified as FT-28, which was Lieutenant Taylor with Flight 19, responded. Both of my compasses are out and I'm trying to find Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I am over land, but it's broken. I'm sure I'm in the Keys, but I don't know how far down, and I don't know how to get to Fort Lauderdale. Taylor's claim didn't seem to make sense. He had made his scheduled pass over hens and chicken shoals in the Bahamas less than an hour earlier, but he now believed his planes had somehow drifted hundreds of miles off course and ended up in the Florida Keys in less than an hour. The 27-year-old had just transferred to Fort Lauderdale from Miami and may have since speculated that he may have confused some of the islands of the Bahamas for the Keys. Under normal circumstances, pilots lost in the Atlantic were supposed to point their planes toward the setting sun and fly west toward the mainland. But Taylor had become convinced that he might be over the Gulf of Mexico, hoping to locate the Florida Peninsula. He made a fateful decision to steer Flight 19 northeast, a course that would only take them further out to sea. FT-74 informed the base at Fort Lauderdale that aircraft were lost, then advised Taylor to put the sun on his port wing and fly north up the coast to Fort Lauderdale. Base operations then asked if the flight leader's aircraft was equipped with a standard IFF transmitter, which could be used to triangulate the flight's position but FT-28 did not acknowledge the question. Later, he would indicate that his transmitter was indeed activated. Instead of responding to the transmitter question, FT-28 replied, We are headed at 030 degrees for 45 minutes. Then we will fly north to make sure we're not over the Gulf of Mexico. It was during this time that no bearings could be made on the flight, and IFF could not be picked up. Taylor was told to broadcast on 4805 kilocycles, but the order was not acknowledged, so he was asked to switch to 3,000 kilocycles. 
At this point, Taylor replied, I cannot switch frequencies. I must keep my planes intact. At 16.56 or 4.56 p.m., Taylor was again asked to turn on his transmitter. He did not acknowledge, but a few minutes later advised his flight, change course to 090 degrees due east for 10 minutes. At that point, one of his students replied, Damn it, if we could just fly west, we'd get home. Head west, damn it. If you're wondering why the trainees didn't turn and head west, then you don't understand military discipline. You do what your commanding officer orders you to do without question. Now the weather was deteriorating and radio contact was becoming intermittent. Taylor was eventually persuaded to turn around and head west, but shortly after 6 p.m. he seems to have canceled the order and once again changed direction. We didn't go far enough east, he said, still worried that he might be in the Gulf. We may as well just turn around and go east again. His pilots probably argued against the decision. Some investigators even believed that one plane broke off and flew in a different direction. But most followed their commander's lead. Flight 19's radio transmission soon became increasingly faint as it meandered out to sea. When fuel began to run low, Taylor was heard at 1820 hours prepping his men for a potential crash landing in the ocean. All planes close up tight, he said. We'll have to ditch unless landfall. When the first plane drops below 10 gallons, we all go down together. A few minutes later, the Avengers' last radio communications were replaced by an eerie buzz of static. Many investigators believe that at that point the flight was 200 miles out to sea, north of the Bahamas, and way off the coast of central Florida. The Navy immediately scrambled search plans to hunt for the missing patrol. At 1800 hours, a PBY Catalina was dispatched to search for Flight 19 and guide them back if possible. Around 7.30 p.m., a pair of Martin PBM Mariner flying boats, which had been scheduled for their own training flights, were diverted to perform square pattern searches in the area west of 29 north, 79 degrees west. PBM-5 took off at 1927 hours from Naval Air Station Banana River, which is now Patrick Air Force Base, called in a routine message at 1930 hours, and by all accounts suffered a huge explosion and dropped into the ocean in a fiery maelstrom within minutes of that transmission. At 2115 hours, or 915 p.m., the tanker SS Gaines Mills reported that it had seen flames from an apparent explosion leaping 100 feet into the air and burning for 10 minutes at 2859 North, 80.25 West. Captain Shona Stanley reported unsuccessfully searching through a pool of oil and aviation gasoline. The aircraft carrier Solomons also reported losing radar contact with a flying craft at that position at the time that the Gaines Mills had seen the explosion. The remains of the Mariner and its 13 crewmen were never found, but it's commonly believed that the seaplane exploded shortly after takeoff. Flying boats were notoriously accident-prone and were even nicknamed flying gas tanks for their propensity for catching fire. At first light the next day, the Navy dispatched more than 300 boats and aircraft 
to look for Flight 19 and the missing Mariner. The search party spent five days combing through more than 300,000 square miles of territory, but to no avail. They just vanished, Navy Lieutenant David White later recalled. We had hundreds of planes out looking, and we searched over land and water for days, and nobody ever found the bodies or any debris. A Navy Board of Investigation was also left scratching its head. While it argued that Taylor might have confused the Bahamas for the Florida Keys after his compasses malfunctioned, it could find no clear explanation for why Flight 19 had become so disoriented in the first place. Its members eventually attributed the loss to causes or reasons unknown. The strange events of December 5, 1945, have since become fodder for all manner of wild theories and speculation. In the 1960s and 70s, pulp magazines and writers such as Vincent Gaddis and Charles Berlitz helped popularize the idea that Flight 19 had been gobbled up by the Bermuda Triangle. Other books and fictional portrayals have suggested that magnetic anomalies, parallel dimensions, and alien abductions might have all played a role in the tragedy. In 1977, the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind famously depicted Flight 19 as having been whisked away by flying saucers and later deposited in the deserts of Mexico. Even if the lost squadron didn't fall victim to the supernatural, there's no denying that its disappearance was accompanied by many oddities and unanswered questions. Perhaps the strangest of all concerns Lieutenant Taylor. Witnesses later claimed that he arrived to the Flight 19's pre-exercise briefing several minutes late and requested to be excused from leading the mission. I just don't want to take this one out, he supposedly said. Just why Taylor tried to get out of the flying remains a mystery, but it has led many to suggest that he may not have been fit for duty. Also unexplained is why none of the members of Flight 19 made use of the rescue radio frequency or their plane's ZBX receivers, which could have helped lead them toward Navy radio towers on land. The pilots were told to switch these devices on, but they either didn't hear the message or didn't acknowledge it. So what really happened to Flight 19? The most likely scenario is that the planes eventually ran out of gas and ditched in the ocean somewhere off the coast of Florida, leaving any survivors at the mercy of rough seas and deep water. In an even stranger story, in 1991, a group of treasure hunters led by Graham Hawks seemed to have finally solved the puzzle when they stumbled upon the watery graves of five World War II-era Avengers near Fort Lauderdale. Unfortunately, it was later found that the Hulks belonged to a different group of Navy planes whose serial numbers didn't match those of the fabled Lost Squadron. Apparently, these planes were discarded by the Navy as obsolete. In 1986, the wreckage of an Avenger was found off the Florida coast during the search for the wreckage of the Space Shuttle Challenger. Aviation archaeologist John Muir raised this wreck from the ocean floor in 1990. He was convinced it was one of the missing planes, but positive identification couldn't be made. 
Records also showed training accidents between 1942 and 1945 accounted for the loss of 95 aviation personnel from NAS Fort Lauderdale. In 1992, another expedition located scattered debris on the ocean floor, but nothing could be identified. Many believe the wrecks of Flight 19 and its doomed rescue plane may still lurk somewhere in the Bermuda Triangle, but while the search continues to this day, no definitive signs of the six aircraft or their 27 crewmen have ever been found. In an article written by Ken Kay for the Sun Sentinel, dated April 7, 2014, entitled Flight 19, Has the Mystery of the Lost Patrol Been Solved? In the article, Ken Kay reports on a 1989 discovery of a crashed torpedo bomber which was discovered inland by a Broward County Sheriff during a flyover after a fire. He introduces two men who have spent years looking for any evidence of true whereabouts of the Flight 19 Avengers. John Meyer, just mentioned, former Palm Beach International Air Traffic Controller and author of Discovery of Flight 19, and Andy Morocco, an historian and California businessman who has dedicated a large portion of his life to finding the truth of the story. Morocco went to the National Archives and obtained the Navy's 500-page Board of Investigation report on the loss of Flight 19. In it, he found that the USS Solomon's aircraft carrier, while off the coast of Daytona Beach, had picked up a radar signal from four to six unidentified planes over North Florida, about 20 miles northwest of Flagler Beach. That was at 7 p.m. on December 5, 1945, or about an hour and a half after Flight 19 was due back at the Naval Air Station Fort Lauderdale today, Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport. While at an altitude of about 4,000 feet and flying at about 135 miles per hour, the planes then made a turn to a compass heading of 170 degrees, or southeast. Important details never before factored into the Flight 19 disappearance, the two men said. Based on the southeast course, Meyer and Morocco recalculated that at least one of the single-engine, eight-ton planes would have crashed within miles of where the torpedo bomber was found 25 years ago inland. That wreckage was spotted by a Broward Sheriff's helicopter pilot in the Everglades about 10 miles west of the Alligator Alley toll booth and about one mile north of the highway. At that time, several experts, including Meyer, concluded that the plane couldn't have come from Flight 19 because it was too far from where the Navy had received its last vague fix on the squadron, which was about 150 miles east of Daytona Beach, out over the Atlantic. Meyer and Morocco now say it's fully possible the USS Solomons was tracking the lost patrol. Because it was night and there was bad weather, the pilots probably had no idea they had meandered over land, Morocco said. To bolster their case, they checked photos of the cockpit of the 1989 plane and determined it was a TBM Avenger 3, the exact model flown by Lieutenant Charles Taylor, the commander of Flight 19. From an Internet search, they say a rubber heel found at the wreckage site came from a size 11 or 12 dress shoe that would fit a man at least 6 feet tall. Charles Taylor was 6 foot 1, Morocco said. Meanwhile, the Navy has no record of a TBM-3 Avenger missing in or around Florida between 1944 and 1952, 
other than Charles Taylor's plane, further leaving open the possibility the Everglades wreck belonged to Flight 19. Until the time of their report, most military and history buffs believed that the 14 crew members of Flight 19 perished when their planes ran out of fuel and crashed far out in the Atlantic Ocean. To confirm their theory on the Lost Patrol, the two men need to reinspect the plane in the Everglades and find Navy Bureau numbers on its wings that would match up with those on Taylor's torpedo bomber. The problem is, they can't find the wreckage. They fear that hunters, airboaters, or others who roam the Everglades may have taken pieces of the wreckage as souvenirs, particularly after its discovery was publicized in 1989. Still, they hope someone with an interest in digging up history will help them financially to mount an expedition. To this day, we still can't find an exact location, Morocco said, but if we find that plane again, I think we'll be able to positively identify it. For anyone who can help, I've been pronouncing their names as Meyer and Morocco. My apologies if my pronunciation is wrong. I'll give you the spelling so you can search for them. Meyer, I have here spelled M-Y-H-R-E. And Morocco, I have spelled M-A-R-O-C-C-O. To this day, we still can't find an exact location, Morocco said. But if we find that plane again, I think we'll be able to positively identify it. And yet one more link to the Avengers story. In 1966, a Florida hunter named Graham Stickleather stumbled upon the wreckage of a World War II airplane with two bodies still inside it. Stickleather, a county attorney, contacted the Navy, giving them the location, and they picked up the plane and the human remains. Navy authorities initially told him that the plane was from Flight 19, but later recanted and refused to identify the bodies. Stickleather died before he was able to get answers from the Navy, despite a Freedom of Information request from none other than John Meyer. Remember Meyer's research that noted that the carrier Solomons, which had been following Flight 19 on radar, had noticed that the planes turned toward Central Florida just before they disappeared from radar. If you believe they had enough gas at that point to make the mainland, it is possible to believe that one or more could have crashed on the mainland. It's also possible that one or more pilots could have disobeyed Lieutenant Taylor's orders and headed toward the mainland, choosing a crash on land at night over one in the sea. And Meyer also dug up some very interesting reports, one from the pilots of an Eastern Airlines DC-3 who had spotted a red flare not far from the crash site that Stickleather had found. Meyer believes this plane was the one piloted by Captain Powers, who was accompanied by Marine Sergeant Howell Thompson, the gunner, and Sergeant George Peonessa, the radio man. There was a very strange story connected to Sergeant Peonessa. A few days after Flight 19 had disappeared, Peonessa's family in Mamaroneck, New York, received a telegram from the Naval Air Station in Jacksonville. This account coming from the Dawson at the Naval Air Station Lauderdale, named Minerva Bloom. The telegraph said, I am very much alive, and was signed Georgie, which was Sergeant Payonessa's nickname. A cruel prank? Or a man who had disobeyed orders somehow survived a deadly crash and decided he'd had enough of the war and the military. As with many stories, we may never know, and you're left to decide. <laughs>